1: Welcome to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kyle Beadle, and today we'll be talking with Professor Philippe Borbeau about his book entitled On Resilience, Genealogy, Logics, and World Politics, which is newly out in paperback. Professor Philippe Borbeau is the first director of the Graduate School in International Studies at the University Laval in Quebec. He is also the chairholder of the Canada Research Chair in Immigration and Security and an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Laval. He has published articles on securitization of migration, the power of numbers in global governance, resilience as applied to g- world politics. The Practice Approach in International Relations, and A Multidisciplinary Theorization of Security. He is also the author of Security, Dialogue Across Disciplines, from Cambridge University Press in 2015, and The Securitization of Migration from Rutledge in 2013. Thank you, Philippe, for being here today. How are you doing?
0: Thank you very much. This is a wonderful introduction. Well, wow, I'm flattered. Thank you very much.
1: So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background?
0: Sure. Uh, well, let's first with perhaps an apology. Um, English is not my mother tongue. It's, it's it's a language I learned quite late in my life. So, apologies, uh, I'm probably going to make any, a lot of mistakes. You know, verb tenses and all that stuff. Uh, so, um, please accept the. Uh, the less than perfect English uh, I'm going to try to entertain you with in the next 40 minutes. Um, I'm, I'm from Quebec, uh, it's a Francophone province in Canada, and um, I decided back in the days uh, to try to do a PhD in political science, always been very much interested in immigration. Always wanted to learn more about why people are moving and what are the implications of that movement of people. Did a PhD in the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, so on the west coast of Canada. And then um, got a job at a small francophone university in Belgium, in Namur, which is a wonderful city, if we ever are allowed to travel as a tourist, uh, I highly recommend. It's a wonderful, beautiful, small city. It's really gorgeous. And I've been there for three years, and then I got a job at the University of Cambridge in the the United Kingdom. Uh, I've been there for a few years. This is also a wonderful city to visit, by the way. Uh, And then from there, the University of Laval um, invited me to apply for a um, Canada Research Chair and I did. Then I arrived in Quebec City in 2017. And as you mentioned, uh, since 20, 2019, I'm the director of the Graduate Studies and International Studies. Uh, we could talk about that a bit later. But that's basically the, uh, the path or the multiple path that I had the privilege of walking.
1: And how did you come to write this book?
0: Well, um, I, I between jobs, I uh, happen to follow quite a bit of, a, of the work done in psychology. Uh, my work is on migration and security, and security in a very multidisciplinary kind of way of understanding it. And uh, there's always a lot of case, sadly, a lot of case studies on child soldiers or child development in war zone in war conflict and resilience in that literature is very much used to describe how these kids child got, got you know went through it through it all and so it's difficult to pinpoint really the origin, but there was always that kind of resilience noise in the background of my own studies on security. And then I would say around 2014, 15, I really decided to um, devote some time to it. It's always a matter of making some times. And I, I thought around that time, well, I, I'm curious, I need to, I, I need to dig deeper here.
1: And why exactly resilience? Like, why is resilience important in global politics or in the recent kind of academic literature?
0: Well, that's a great question. And, and yeah, resilience, because you know, I'm always intrigued by uh, the simplicity of some concept. And resilience is a key example. We always translate or even define resilience as bouncing back, um, which is... It's true and there is part of it that it it described partly what resilience is all about yet the literatures keep saying that resilience was a little bit more than this and that for me was really puzzling our common understanding means it seems to be limiting and what are the effects of this and what are the consequences of that? Uh, so that's what really drove me into looking into it in sense of okay, why resilience? When we say individuals are resilient, what do we mean? Are we really only mean that they're bouncing back to to what actually? You know, to, to something that was there before, before what? And it's even more complicated when you think about societies. Society is being resilient. Well, what then? They're bouncing back to what you know—a rigid understanding of society prior a shock. Okay, what exactly does that mean? And if you add another layer of complexity, uh, resilience was also very much developed and discussed in another discipline, which is ecology, where you know they look at it through the eyes of a system—you know, a lake. How does a lake go back to functioning, functioning after a shock or disturbances? So the more and more I've read about it, the more and more I realized that resilience was you know, all around us, yet it was a powerfully complex concept uh, that could be very useful in understanding what's going on around us.
1: And you begin your book by defining um resilience in your own way. Can you, can you uh, maybe do that for us and then kind of show how it differs from um, kind of the other literature? Yeah. Well, uh,
0: when I first got into resilience, uh, there was also, there was always that kind of fairly simple definition of bouncing back. This is going back to something and i thought uh this was a little bit um perhaps simplistic or um, inconclusive for me and i thought well there's there's got to be something else there we need to look at it into a little bit more complexity first is this just one action or it's a pattern of actions. Uh, it's this one thing that I'm doing that I can go back to? Or it's a set of reaction, set of pattern, repeated action that brings me to somewhere. So I started to think about resilience not that much as a quality that, that an individual possess. That was pretty much the early understanding in psychology literature back in the 50s and the 60s and the 40s. That, you know. And then either you had either you had resilience or you had not. It was some sort of a quality that you did possess or not. And I wanted to move away from this, as did the literature uh, in psychology and and criminology. So I started to define resilience as a process. Uh, And when you say process, it means dynamism. It means that it's changing, that it means that it's moving and that it's redefining itself. So it was not a set of qualities, it was a process. And it was a process of adjustment. It's not necessarily reaction, it's not necessarily other thing, it's a a process of patterned adjustment. So they're not punctual, there's something we can track and trace it's a repeated set of actions. Um, part of the definition that I'm proposing, uh, and I'll get to the exact actual definition in a in, in few seconds, uh, the struggle was also that there was a lot of literature focusing on external shocks. Yet resilience is also about internal one, and is especially when you think about society, you know, uh, shock, to a society or for a society it's not always external to the same society it could be internal so resilience is also very important to end the definition of it to include the notion that the shocks the disturbances could be both internal and external Uh, now the next part of the definition is to understand to do what you know you're being resilient for what you know what's for what for in a way Uh, well i theorize that you're either resilient to maintain a status quo so you want to go back to something that was there before um you either want to modify things at the margin you don't really want to go back yet you don't want to stay the same and you don't want to you don't want to transform everything but you just want to on the margin, modify either your policy, your behavior, your perhaps your personality, and all that stuff. And the third one is to really to transform who you are, a given policy. So when you add these pieces and bits all together, the clear definition that I'm trying to push here and that, that I do suggest is that resilience is the process of pattern adjustments adopted in the face of endogenous or exogenous shocks to maintain, to marginally modified, or to transform a referent object. And the last part is the referent object, which means who could be resilient? You know, is this only individuals, society, international organization? Think about WT the, the WHO these days. Uh, any kind of is it the state Is this a nation, ethnicity, all that stuff.
1: And can you further explain the origins of resilience in academia? I know in the first section of the book, you go into the genealogy of um, resilience. And can you maybe lay out how um, you create a different genealogy for resilience?
0: Well, in my field, uh, there was a there's an, an article published in 2011, or was it 11? I don't remember exactly. Uh, there was a key article uh, published that identified one single linear evolution, if you want, of the concept. And they've done that on purpose to criticize resilience. So for a, a big chunk of the literature, resilience is bad in many ways. Why? Because you can trace the the meaning or the origin of it back to one discipline, and it's ecology, uh, which is wrong. As I just mentioned, psychologists have been working on resilience for way longer than ecologists. But for some reason, these scholars def- decided that ecology was the, you know, the first discipline to work on this in the 70s as, you know, Evidence is there, very easily findable in some ways that it's not true. But the whole point was to say, ecology understanding of resilience is based on the search for an equilibrium. And it makes sense when you study a lake. It is true to some extent that a lake with you know, if for some reason get a lot of polluted water... Try to find a way to get back to some sort of an equilibrium within the system around it. Uh, so there's a, there's a notion of equilibrium, and there's a notion of going back to something that was there, uh, almost in a sense of a rational kind of understanding of how things are working in the, on the planet. Uh, my argument was, well, this is true, but largely incomplete. You know, this is not a genealogy. And the best way to think about a genealogy is to think about a tree. You know, that, that that's what the genealogy is. There are multiple branches. There's not just one. Uh, and you don't know the end result. You just don't know what's up there. Uh, it depends from where you start. And this is how I came to propose that the origin of resilience, if there is such a thing. Uh, it's certainly not linear. It has to be multiple branches and when you really look into it you realize quite quickly that in fact you know there are a lot of work in psychology in the 40s and the 50s, in the 50s criminologists in the 70s and the 80s and then there's a whole range of other discipline urban studies engineering that really populated that tree and uh, made resilience the multi- disciplinary concept that it is today. And then to reduce it to one linear branch seems to me to be a key mistake.
1: So towards the end, in in your conclusion, you talk about bridging concepts, and um, you talk about how resilience is a good bridge concept between Psychology and other disciplines, or ecology, and it it's one of these things that bridges um, multiple disciplines. And so, I guess my question is: is for you, as someone who studies um, global politics and migration, why do you think that um, we're we're such attracted to these these bridged concepts, these ideas that? Across multiple disciplines,
0: yeah, it's a good, it's a great question. Uh, well, let me let me just let me just say uh, because I think the world works that way. Look mm-hmm. at how what we're facing right now, the the pandemics. Um, if you look back twelve months ago, not that far ago, twelve months ago, um, it would have been very difficult then, as it is right now, to argue that only one discipline could really understand the cause and the consequences of a pandemic. Uh, you know, no one did no one made that, that argument. Why? Why that's the case? Well because it was a clear um, connection with reality. You know, we we university professors, and I have a lot of colleagues, lots, lots of my friends are university professors, and I love them very much. Yet there's something sometime we're missing is that the world is not functioning in the way we understand it. Uh, So a university typically is, is organized through discipline. And when we, go around and find a team or a topic or an issue to study, we tend to reproduce that disciplinary way of understanding things. So if you work on power, then, you know, if you come from political science, you have a, a certain track or path to look at it. If you look at other things, economy, anyway, you get the point. The whole So the whole notion of a disciplinary understanding of issues is, a wonderful way within the university to function. But when you take that functioning world outside and put it into the real world, sometimes there's a disconnect. Not always, but sometimes, more often than not, there's a disconnect. And I think the pandemics is clearly one of the biggest illustrations of that. And I think resilience is another one because you see it in so many disciplines and so many field of research are using this word or using this concept are trying to understand what's the meaning of it and what's the added value then my argument is to say listen this is like security this is like power security is very much theorized in the field of international relations slash political science but they don't have a monopoly on what, it, what security is all about. Criminologists are working on security as well. Sociologists, historian, uh, you know, philosopher are working on security. Aristotle works on security. So it, it, it's not a monopoly of political science. My sense is that resilience and security are part of these huge concepts that are bridging discipline together and they're simply illustrating that. If you don't work this way, if you don't work with a multi or interdisciplinary framework, it's not that you're wrong. It's just that you're missing a big chunk of reality.
1: That 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 that's very well put. Um, and um, I guess you then uh, use this multidisciplinary. Um, Outlook to apply the concept of resilience to global politics. Um, Can you kind of explain the importance of that connection and maybe dive a little bit more into um how you theorize resilience in global politics?
0: Well, the the key example is migration. So um and the example we use is both loads of refugees. uh, sadly, Uh, We see that pretty much every summer in North America, especially, you know, uh, at least on the West Coast. Uh, There's always, or there have been in the past few years, uh, these sad events where there's boats coming out of the Pacific Pacific Ocean and end up on shores. You know, we have had that in Vancouver in 99, but presumably in the U.S. as well, perhaps, I don't know. Uh, Arrival of a certain number of refugees or asylum seekers uh, in some sort of boats uh, on shores of our country. Now, that's the shock. Uh, This is a disturbance. This this is an event. uh, And uh, we need to figure out what it means. Uh, Now, you have multiple options as a society to read this event. Um, Either you look at it through uh, a a sense of um, protection. We need to protect, uh, for example, the Canadian society from these individuals. There might be terrorists into their group, so we need to protect ourselves. We need to be resilient. Canadian society needs to be resilient to make sure that that event doesn't happen too often and that the consequences are not negative. So we need to protect ourselves. So there's a strategy of maintaining the status quo, um, either by in, in relationship with these refugees, or even broader. Take, for example, if you um, admit a million immigrants per year in your country. There are arguments out there that's going to say, well, if we accept too many of them, We won't know who we are anymore, or as a nation, as a group. If the province of Quebec accept too many immigrants, the argument goes, uh, we won't know what it means to be Québécois anymore. We won't know what it means to be French, if that happened in France, U.S., etc., etc. So the whole point is to say we need to be resilient to protect ourselves, So there's a strategy of maintaining the status quo. There's a flip side to this, um, which is perhaps less documented, where the event disturbance of either the refugees both or the general immigration system uh, pointing to some limits and, and problems could as well highlight, underscore the need to transform a policy. Perhaps that's the policy is the problem, not entirely, but part of the pro, of the policy is the problem. Therefore, being resilient mean enacting a transformation, a renewal. We will redefine who we are, and in a way, to some extent, if we summarize greatly here in a bold kind of statement, in a way, Canadian immigration system in the 60s and the 70s was about that. You know, it used to be a fairly rigid closed system, immigration system in Canada, you know, prior to the 60s and the 70s. But in the 68, 70, 75, they've decided to transform what migration meant to Canada and then renew its sense or its understanding or its relationship with the other, other being the immigrant. So what does the sense of being resilient means bouncing forward to some extent. So, you know, uh, migration is always the, you know, the key example to illustrate this.
1: Right, and I, I am interested in um, the theoretical framework you lay out um, as well. Um, could you explain, I know it, it, it looks better to read it on paper, but um, can you explain maybe that triangular relationship between security resilience and non-security politics?
0: Okay, um, there's a bit of a prior discussion here though. Um, this is a book within the security field that looks mm-hmm. at it through the effect of discourses. So, uh, how do we understand an issue to be securitized? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we know whether it is securitized? There's a, there's a huge debate in the field about this. One of the ways that an issue gets to be securitized. Not the end of the story, but one of it, one side of the story, is to say that someone has to say it. Someone has to declare that migration is a security concern. If no one's mentioned that migration is a security concern, then chances are it won't be. Now, you and me, we can say that migration is a security concern while having a cup of coffee, it won't have a lot of consequences. But if it's the president of the United States, or if it's the prime minister of Canada, or it's the prime minister of the UK, that's a whole different story. So there's a social power as to who is making that speech. So the whole theoretical framework was to say, it's not true that we can securitize everything. That's not the point. But if we follow that line, then it means that security is a little bit flexible in terms of how do we understand what's a security issue or not. Now, having said that, what happens if you want to de-securitize an issue? Let's assume, and you know where I'm getting with this. Let's assume that migration is securitized in a given country. And you are an activist, and you think this is a bad thing. How do you de-securitize migration? Well, part of it is probably that you don't say that migration is a security answer and concern, so you just don't you, know, you don't, don't talk about it. The other avenue it might be to be resilient about it and use resilience as a way to get to somewhere. So the resilience would stand in the middle actually of migration and security so you as a society are unease, uncomfortable perhaps afraid of migrant the whole argument was would be to say well you we need to be resilient before being securitized or be, before securitizing migration so resilient becomes somewhat in the in the middle of it in sense of securitizing or securing the society feeling or perception of migration instead of jumping directly to let's securitize the whole thing, otherwise, we won't know who we are anymore. And my sense is that if we accepted that resilience was part of it, at some somewhat in the, in the middle of that equation, then perhaps migration would not need to be as much securitized as it is today.
1: Right. And uh, can you maybe go into that a bit uh, more about how you think that migration could be desecuritized?
0: Oh Well, it's, it's, it's really difficult um, to imagine because really migration was a solution to a lot of problems in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, you know, It was a problem. It was a solution to a demographic problem. Uh, it was a solution to an economic problem. Uh, and back in the 1990s, pretty much throughout the liberal democracies, it became a security concern. It became somewhat of a danger. Everywhere, in all liberal democracies, all of them, in the early 90s, they all switched to understanding migration as a security issue. Um, why is that? What happened there? Well, you know, perhaps it was the end of the Cold War. Uh, perhaps it was other issue. There was other events. Yet we see this trend. Now, how do we scale back if we want to? Because really, some rightly or wrongly are quite comfortable with the fact that migration is securitized or fairly happy that at some point in time there's a sense or perception that we do control our borders and all that stuff. Uh, rightly or wrongly, that's not the point. But how do you desecuritize migration? It's very difficult. And the mistake would be, I think, to think of it in one linear answer. Uh, there's no there's no magic there. Uh, as long as people think and believe that there's a threat associated with the movement of people, then, you know, part of it will be securitized. Now, you know, you could ask me, how do we make sure that it's no longer a threat? Threat. Well, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, And I don't think anyone knows actually, or, you know, and I would be very skeptical of fairly easy and simplistic answers to that kind of question.
1: Right, I agree. And I I think, where I'm trying to go with this is that there is a larger debate that could be had around how around the broadening of security issues and um to include things like climate change which which is which is a security issue in my opinion but do you think that resilience the concept of resilience could apply to other types of areas that are securitized.
0: That's a great question. Um, well, in the field, in uh, you know, not that long ago, into two, three, perhaps four years ago, there was a lot of a position between resilience and resistance. There was a sense that uh, you cannot be both. So either you resist the policy, or you become accustomed to it, or uh, you let down your guards with that kind of image as well, and then you become resilient. You accept your fate, and you you don't rebel anymore. Um, We did a bit of a study in terms of understanding what's the relationship between these two concepts, and we found that it is wrong to believe that they are mutually exclusive. You can be both resilient and resistant to some extent. Um, and to resist, you need to be resilient most of the time because you're gonna, if you look at it through the long-term basis and if you try to resist one of the most powerful organizations on earth, the state, uh, if you want to resist a given state, you'll need to be resilient because there's going to be obstacles on, on, along the way. Um, So this is one way of looking at it through that interaction between resistance and resilience and understanding where does that lead us to some extent. Uh, So we're in the beginning, in in the beginning of all these kind of literature. And I found it very stimulating to understand where it's going and how do we theorize the relationship between the two.
1: And you finish your book by proposing future research agendas for resilience. Do you mind giving me a brief overview um, of those futures, and maybe which, or maybe you could just give me a couple that excite you the most? Or I know that um, this initially came out in 2018, and so maybe you could also um, give our listeners some developments. Good.
0: Yeah, well, um, two things, uh, and I write it down just to make sure I don't forget. Um, The the first one is I wrote this book for Cambridge Cambridge University Press with, uh, I would say, the literature in mind or a scholarship or a academic or scientific kind of paper uh, as an audience. So the whole point was to pitch to them in some way, uh, my colleagues to say, listen, I, I, I think, you know, I agree with you or I don't agree with you, or I think this, this, we should develop this or should not develop this one. Um, part of it is, as you mentioned in uh, a few minutes ago, the idea that resilience is the intra-social science bridging concept that we we're running out of time in a way it, by only looking at these issues through disciplinary understanding we're making a key mistake and we should stop doing that this is so this is a you know this is a call that i'm trying and it's it's, it's almost a wake up call to my colleagues listen I, we need to move here we we need to grasp the future a bit of academia and start looking through these lances or disciplinary lances, um, I'll, 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 I'll do a little a small parenthesis here before getting to the second point. But uh, since I'm in Quebec City at the University of Laval, I'm the graduate di- I'm the director of the graduate school in international studies, and the graduate school has a, a very particular and, to my point of view, excellent program. and And principle is that. By definition, it is multidisciplinary. So we have 70 members, which are professors, that are um, shared with different discipline around campus. Uh, we have six faculties that works with us, uh, faculty of social science, law, administration, and others. And um, all the students that comes to do our master and PhD program, they have to follow course and seminars and different discipline. Each individual, each master students, each PhD students is supervised by two supervisors coming from two disciplines. So at the end of your program, you are thoroughly, truly, Bidisciplinary or at least multidisciplinary by design. So our bet, our, our mission in a way, is to prepare these students to the world of 2021, which is it's, it's a multidisciplinary world. Like it or not, this is the best way to go. Again, pandemics seems to prove it. Um, The second direction of of resilience that I would like to to pursue um, is there's a connection between perhaps two concepts that we haven't talked about in world politics, sadly so, uh, is the connection between resilience and trauma. Uh, There's a wonderful book by Emma Hutchinson um, at Queensland University in Australia, Wonderful, wonderful book. <laughs> Cannot recommend it more. Um, on trauma in world politics and largely define emotions in world politics. How do they interact in, away from opposing emotion and rationality? We're not in that kind of world anymore. But what are the impact, the causes, and the consequences of trauma? In world politics, there's... Many trauma to choose from in world politics, but what does it mean in terms of theorizing the relationship between the two, resilience and trauma? And I think part of it, of the future of the relation of the literature on resilience, is tackling that key issue of resilience and other concepts, trauma being one. We talked about resi- resistance, but there might be. Power so resilience and power was then me. I talked a lot about resilience and security, but what about resilience and public policies? What about resilience and democracy? So perhaps a team that you talked about in the U.S. these days, or you know, in the last few months and two, three years, the resilience of democracy or the resilience of democratic institutions or dictatorship because dictatorship could be resilient as well
1: (laughs) so philippe uh i've taken up a lot of your time for today so finally um where are you off to next what are you working on now
0: I'm working on now two things, uh, one of which I'm super happy. Um, we did cre- we did at the Graduate School uh, of International Studies a summer school uh, in May and June of last year. So right in the middle of the pandemic, we did a summer school on Zoom, online, uh, where we invited 25, 30 scholars from diverse discipline to talk about the cause and the consequences of pandemics on their own either discipline or field of research so uh, what is the consequences on international investment what is the consequence of pandemics on environmental issue on food security on diplomacy on migration on other things, and what's the relationship with history of pandemics and all these kind of things. It was hugely popular, wonderful, and then Oxford University Book, uh, Oxford University Press invited us to submit a book proposal, which we did last summer. And um, I'm glad to say that the book is under contract. Uh, so we, it should be out, well, presumably 2021 by now. Uh, but it, and it's a collection of Multiple discipline, multiple scholars, multiple generation of scholars uh, looking at pandemics, not that much COVID-19 per se, or not that much pandemics themselves, but the impact of it. So this is not a book about the history of all the pandemics that happened to humankind, but what, what are the consequences of this for these issues? Uh, and I'm super happy collection of wonderful scholars. humbled to be the editor of that, such a professional, talented, wonderful group of scholars. So that's the one main um, research project that it coming. it's coming to an end now. Uh, the second one is I wanna produce, and I wanna think in, invite scholars to uh, work a little bit more on a multidisciplinary understanding of resilience Uh, this is an argument that i'm pushing forward for the last four or five years but i want to connect individual now i made the argument i want scholars to connect through a big conference where we could lay out the paradigm of resilience as a concept that could cut across Disciplines.
1: That all sounds very exciting. Um, thank you very much for your time, and thank you for being here today.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite, and hopefully, um, I did not make too many mistakes in, uh, in in speaking to you today.
1: No, it was great, and thank you to our listeners for joining us for our discussion of Professor Philippe Borbo's new book entitled "On Resilience, Genealogy." Logics, and World Politics, recently published in paperback by the Cambridge University Press. Bye for now.